out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. It does sound rather interesting. Thank you, Jim. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastor, and this is the C86 Show, bringing you the finest in indie pop and beyond. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is the turn of Dave Graney, all the way from Australia, one-time member of The Moodists, and now a phenomenal solo artist who's been churning out records left, right and centre for decades. This is an interview I did at the end of um, November, and I've kept um, the beginning in, not completely the beginning where I say hello, but the little bit that um, talks about, yes, that hot topic, bushfires. I thought, you know, it's historic now, isn't it, really? Let's face it, it will go down in history. So I left it in. So that was November 2019. Anyway, this is the interview. And also, I'd like to dedicate this to Lucy. Lucy, we've always got the eighth floor. Anyway, she'll know what I mean. This is Dave. This is me. Enjoy. Take it away. Uh, not really, no, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm fine. Uh, we, we just were in uh, doing some dates in New South Wales in an area where there's lots of bushfires. Oh, yes. So we were just incredible kind of smoky environment as of uh, it's a rainforest area. It's, it's on fire. It shouldn't be. It's, they're, they're going nuts up there. Yeah. Terrible. Yes, that so I've got, it sounds like I've got a bit of a cold, but I think it's it just irritates your sinuses or something. Well, absolutely, and <coughs> it must be a very depressing sight as well. Yes, shit. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, there are areas where they usually deal with flood. You know, it's very green and luxuriant, beautiful part of New South Wales. Uh, <coughs> but yeah, it's all on fire. Yeah. Bloody hell. So is it slightly under getting under control or is it still a bit of a disaster zone? There's a really bad drought here and uh, and uh, that might have caused it. Uh, but uh, it's kind of climate change and we have a really uh, terrible conservative government that's owned by the mining companies. So they don't recognise, uh, and Rupert Murdoch runs Australia. You know, it's just horrible. But they uh, won't do anything about climate change, and uh, it's just, it's, it's, uh, you know, just. Then uh, they just had an election, and it was more, more or less, a climate election, with them saying, "Don't worry, it doesn't exist." You know, uh, and they got voted in one by one seat. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, not great, not great at all. Anyway, look, this is David. I do a, you know, I'm changing the subject here, but you know, I do a show called the C eighty six show, which I've been doing for three years, and um, you know, each week I do a sort of a, a special guest and and all that excitement, and obviously have been sort of like delving into different uh, different bands because, frankly, <laughs> once you start these projects, it's very hard to stop, and then you think, oh yes, there's yeah. this band and that band, and and being one of those indie kids, especially in the eighties, you know, there was a lot yeah. of Australian bands we loved, and um, yeah. and then you think, God, I must I must try and track down everybody because otherwise yeah. I won't be able to 
uh, you know, sleep at night. So, um, yeah, so it's great that you, you've sort of given me the time for the interview because I'd, yeah. you know, love to sort of, uh, yes, feature you in the show because, frankly, no worries. It, it, would Thank be, you. It, it would be a sham not to. But, yeah, is it possible then, Dave? Because I know yeah. you've, you've got lots out at the moment and, and still yeah. doing loads of stuff, which is quite extraordinary. And I know you're, yeah. you know, you're a phenomenal legend in Australia. But is it possible to get sort of give us a bit of a background of your own kind of musical journey, you know, in your teen years <laughs> and, and how sort of you started to become, you know, like, you know, the career, the path that was music that led you on for the rest of your life? Okay. Uh, I, I, I grew up in uh, a regional town, not in a beautiful kind of countryish area, uh, 300 miles from Adelaide one way and 300 miles from Melbourne the other, about 20,000 people. So it was quite isolated and uh, uh, quite, quite beautiful. But, yeah, I grew, I grew up, you know, as a kid listening to uh, – uh, you know, I experienced the Beatles as a little boy. You know, Claire comes from Adelaide. The Beatles went to Adelaide and uh, 300,000 people came out to wave at them. Yes. And the whole town only had 300,000, I think. H having said that, they did the same thing to Ina Sharples, I think. Uh, yeah, they were excited. But anyway, I, I experienced all that kind of... Uh, you know, uh, pop stuff, and then you know, I was right into uh, music in uh, as a teen, the Rolling Stones and all that, and then I really got into uh, punk rock, which which I think was quite uh, powerful for people in out of the way places. Yes, uh, it was like a, a brilliant kind of dramatic. Show, especially uh, as portrayed in British pop magazines. Yes. So, did you? So, as the seventies sort of progressed, were you also kind of aware of that other kind of musical phenomenon that was glam rock? You know, with with people like I suppose David Bowie. But then we also had sort of you know the other side of glam rock, which was people like the Sweet and T Rex all and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, all of that. You know, girls at my school had. David Bowie pictures on their lockers and all that stuff. Slade were huge, and I, I still think they were they were one of the you know greatest you know the, the greatest hits are just incredible. Uh, and uh, the Rolling Stones, of course, and Led Zeppelin. And uh, I actually you know I collect a lot of vinyl, and I probably listen to more music from before punk. That actual punk stuff. I, I mean, I love Richard Hell and the Voidoids and Wire and Pierre Ubu. Uh, when I was a kid in my teens, uh, me and my friends would drive around in cars. You could get your license at 16. We would drive around in cars smoking dope, getting really stoned out in the forest or going to the drive-in, just classic kind of uh, yes. 70s experience. And... Uh, there was a beach nearby. Some of my friends would go surfing, but it was a very cold. The, the beaches are very cold in South Australia, and the water is quite wild. You know, they filmed Jaws on the on the in South Australia. <clears throat> right, white sharks. But but anyway, I we loved Southern rock. So it, I probably liked that more than glam. 
Yeah. I love loved the Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner, anything associated with them, JJ Kale. Uh, you know, we had we had a very rich kind of uh, I'm talking about say when I was a teen about 75, 76, you know, at school. Van Morrison and Tim Buckley, uh, Ian Hunter's uh, first solo album with Mick Ronson was incredibly big and uh, all, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yes. But, yeah. but so, so what were the local bands like in, in Australia during that time? I mean, did you, you know, <laughs> because obviously, you know, you, you've sort of mentioned all these bands, but no one from Australia. So I just wonder what the musical scene was like with your... What? Yes, your slight elders, but also, did were you kind of because obviously not everyone was doing you know on your path. Were there like the yes, kind of? Well, it was. It was. There was a lot of us. Yeah, but that wasn't weird to to be experiencing all that. Yeah, the yeah. music was very rich. Nineteen seventy six. I remember. You know, we had one record store in the town, and uh, you just and it was all arranged. You know. Uh, there was no nothing retro. It was all just ch- tossed in together. I remember my brother coming home with Bob Marley's uh, Natty Dread and uh, teaching the Maytals and Burning Spear. And, uh, you know, it was very rich. It was, it was full on. Because there was really no live music in the area I grew up in. It, it was, like, comical. They were like, we would get stoned and go out to dances in the forest and it was like something out of a uh, Diane Arbus kind of photo montage, you know, like uh, I'm being patronising, but I was a very working class uh, kid. And uh, <clears throat> it was like the last picture show. I don't know if you ever yes, know that. Yes. movie. We would go there because they would have tons of cakes and we'd be really stoned and hungry. <laughs> and uh, they would just have what was called 60-40 bands, which were cabaret, like 60% old and 40% new. And old was all waltzes and 40% was tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. And, and we would just stand around being like the in-betweeners, just horrible, horrible teenagers yes uh, well but, the, uh, the brotherhood of man was, the brotherhood of man is still sort of ensconced yes. in my brain <laughs> that was a great period for australian culture though for uh television and uh movies and and the the films have never been been better it was a renaissance because uh, there was a, a breakthrough labor government in 1972 that 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 is is just legendary they had been out of power for 26 years and they got back in and they just did all this incredible uh, mind-altering stuff. And uh, like you got uh, paid to go to university, free health care. They got us out of the Vietnam War. They the first country in the world to recognise China and they invested a lot in the arts. And uh, the conservatives of Murdoch, uh, paint them nowadays as reckless uh, types, but it, it was a it was a great time for Australian film, uh, and yes. and and there were at the same time there was a television a pop show which went national, which uh, which really livened up the Australian scene, I think, because until then everybody just had to drive from Melbourne to Sydney, which is about. Uh, 
I don't know, 1,200 kilometres. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, but if you went on television, you could just be everywhere. And so that, I think that was a big difference. And that's where groups like ACDC and Split Ends and uh, uh, they're, they're the ones that vaulted into international uh, favour. But Australia was the first country, for instance, to uh, have to, to be uh, into ABBA. And ABBA made, ABBA made videos, and so they were on this show called Countdown. And, and, and Australians never believe that they do anything first, but uh, I think Australia was the first one to do that. Yes. And were you aware, because obviously with history now, I mean, we also look back, were you aware of these kind of the great exodus from the 60s of people like Jermaine Greer and uh, Robert Hughes, who was, I think, a kind of some sort of academic art critic or artist and then there was yeah. and there was obviously um dame edna god i can't remember yeah. his name um Bar- barry, barry humphreys i should have known i've seen him several times live so were you aware that there was these kind of in the 60s you know these kind of kind of legendary people i don't know if they were at the time they must have been but um you know who'd sort of sailed over to the uk to sort of start another yeah. life on the other side of the world you know were they were they people that you know was that something that was just a rite of passage uh yes australia still looked to the uk as uh as uh a cultural kind of center first and uh but I wasn't so much aware of them. Uh, Claire lived in Adelaide and she actually went to see Barry Humphreys, you know, in a, in a small theatre there. You know, he would come back pretty regularly and do shows. Uh, not so much Jermaine Greer. She probably did, but I wasn't aware of her. But I probably read The Female Eunuch or something when I was a kid. I met her and I really, you know, admire her. I think she's great. And, uh, uh, yeah, Clive James, Robbie Hughes is fantastic. You know, uh, they're probably people I uh, have grown to like more as I got older. And uh, Robert Hughes was influenced by a great writer called Alan Moorhead. Uh, Robert Hughes had a book called The Fatal Shore uh, about the uh, kind of a history of Australia's discovery. But he was mentored by this other guy, Alan Moorhead, who had a book called The Fatal Impact about the exploration across the Pacific by Cook and people and, and their effect on all the animals and people. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I saw them mainly through this movie called The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, which was written by Barry Humphreys, and it's set in Earl's Court and it, and it was based on a comic that was in Private Eye magazine all through the 60s, I think. And it was a huge hit in Australia. Huge, yes. My God, that's just that's just so much for me to go and research. I, you know, there's things like I think, oh, okay, I must go and do that. This is <laughs> <laughs> so. Then, as 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 we trundled and trucked through the seventies, and we'd got we'd had our sort of punk moment and the Silver Jubilee, and you yeah, probably well, I, just to say about England, the first time I saw the Sex Pistols, like. Where I grew up only had two television stations, ABC, which is a government kind of uh, station in, based on the BBC, and a, lo- and a local uh, commercial station. And every Sunday night they would have a, a magazine-type show called This Week in Britain, and it was, uh, and that's, they had the Sex Pistols on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
it was very uh, exciting to see them. I would imagine. And then did you decide, I mean, were you sort of playing guitar and thinking, well, this is quite interesting, but, but perhaps, you know, it, you know, I didn't, did you have any dreams of thinking, this is it, I'm going to be in a band? No, no, I was, I was really, my father painted houses for the local council and my mother raised six kids. We had no car for most of my teens and uh, no, te- no telephone and uh I didn't go to university. I could have, but I didn't. Yeah, uh, it's just so far away from uh, any thoughts of self-expression. But I think my mother gave me an idea about myself that uh, that was very encouraging. I think you know, like mothers can be. Yes. <laughs> Excuse me. No, that's and, fine. Sorry, and. Uh, I was with a group of friends and we were at school together. And I left school and I just went to work at the mill, the timber mill, because that's what you did in that town. It was easy work. You could get a job anytime in the timber mill. It was really shockingly uh, boring work. And uh, it's just being a teenager and growing into your 20s. And uh, it was, you know, an eye-opening kind of uh, time. Uh, but... My friends did go to university or try to do it in Adelaide, and they were all going to see this group called Radio Birdman, who were uh, a Sydney group who were comparable and rivals with the Saints. And uh, Claire used to go and see them all the time, and, and they were absolute. They're still going now. They, you know, they, they, they. Didn't exist. They, they only existed until 1978, but they keep reforming and doing gigs. And if ever they're playing, I would go to see them. I just love them. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I think a week ago or two, I, I did an interview with Dennis. He was, Dennis Tech. Yes, he was. He was, he was like Mr. Iggy Pop, really, isn't he? He does. He does have a, a, a rock and roll call, call, which was a bit sort of um, wow. You are such a cool dude, man. Yeah, he looks incredible. And uh, I've only met him once. And, uh, yes. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he, his father came here in the 70s. He was an academic who wanted to go to watch the Australian Open. And uh, Dennis came with him and really liked it. And he came back to study because he was studying to be a doctor. Yes. This is, uh, well, there's another amazing part of the story, which obviously just to sort of fill you in, because yeah. he kind of came from the same town as Iggy Pop. Yeah, and, and, and then ended up in Australia. And then he's had to go back to Hawaii because of yeah. the farm. And his neighbour is um, a guitarist with the Stooges, James. Um, I heard, yeah, I heard they play tennis together. Yeah. <laughs> and they're sort of <laughs> going to have a musical project. And he, you know, but he didn't know that he was the neighbour to this kind of place in Hawaii. So yeah. it's a bit like. Yeah. Oh my God! That is just James, uh, James this, the raw power era guitarist. Yeah. Yes, which was um, yes, I know. I was yes, it was like if someone had done that in a Hollywood, you know, a script or a film idea, you well, thought, yeah, that's you know, the movie. There's so many legendary things about Radio Birdman and Dennis. Uh, the character in Top Gun, uh, Val Kilmer's name is the Iceman, and that was Dennis's call sign. In the in the Navy Seals, <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
which is amazing. Yeah. So look, then you know, because because yeah. having done this, having done sort of this show for a long time, yeah. you know, with with yeah. most bands, they um, yeah, they get together, you know, and they and they often, you know, in the UK, you know, there was a lot of unemployment and everyone was very yeah. very angsty and bitter about everything, even though. You know, I think, you know, you just are. But in that period, you were particularly angsty and upset about everything. And um, yes, and there was a lot of unemployment and job seekers allowance and the enterprise allowance. So it kind of gave people this kind of like being unemployed. I mean, being unemployed during that period was wasn't actually a big thing. Most people looked at it as like as an inevitable moment of your life that you'd do for a few years until you got too bored and do something else. But during that period, it gave a lot of people an opportunity to sort of take lots of drugs and and then sometimes people also sort of formed a band and then you know and mostly because of a a limited musical ability it meant that people couldn't just kind of copy you know like do covers because they weren't good enough to do covers basically Um, but they could make a sound and this DJ called John Peel would often sort of pick these kind of weird and wonderful records up there was like big flame bog shed stump you know really odd sounding things but he would love that he'd give them a spin you know they would yeah. get this kind of airplay you know the NME that you know had a hundred thousand copies a week would sort of give it a review and and sort of then they'd get John Peel's session which was always a big thing and then the first album so things were often sort of I didn't realize that actually that was just a brilliant sort of they'd like these gatekeepers that we had which kind of helped the scene and and every town and there was a lot of little towns and big towns and cities you know would have an indie club you know so people would get booked you know that did mean that they would have to drive from one part of the country to the other just for one gig and then drive all the way home and you know that was always a bit random but it did help people discover whether music was going to be something for them so did you did you have any did you have a sort of similar experience with with sort of being in the moodists <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Australia uh, is is uh, not the same kind of level of population, and I've come to understand it. it Australian music is probably, you know, really uh, one of its greatest uh, art artistic kind of gifts to the world. You know, uh, it, to, compared to comparable sized populations. I think because of the power of uh, the remote fantasies that drive so many performers, but uh, I, I, there was uh, a great uh, uh, distance between each city. So uh, people like John Peel and that, you know, you know, the UK is so close. You know, we were surprised when we went to the UK how people would not move from their areas very much because Australians just do move around. We have a kind of similar accent that doesn't betray so much of our class or or uh, regional kind of uh, uh, origins. But, uh, yeah, John Peel, we, we went to the UK and did two sessions with him and all that stuff. And uh, the BBC is quite an incredible institution. The... Uh, the uh, culture and knowledge of the uh, engineers of the studios there are quite amazing. Yes. Going, going back to, you know, the, uh, you know, I read books about, uh, you know, Tony Hancock or, 
the British comedians of the 60s, they, they're just so innovative in the, and the sound design of, you know, all those people like the, the uh, Radiophonic Workshop and, you know, because we had all those British TV shows, you know, uh, those gloomy kind of 70s things like Callan. The, the theme music was so good and uh, we had, you know, of course we had Doctor Who and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, and... and uh, is that what you were asking, whether there was a replicated thing like that in Australia? Yeah, and just, and also... There wasn't. Uh, was we, just, were just, we were just like Jermaine Greer and Clive James and uh, Robert Hughes. We couldn't wait to get out of Australia because everything seemed to happen more quickly everywhere else. And uh, Australia had a live music scene. And the generation before the kind of post-punk generation here were fantastic uh, players, but they couldn't. They they had no cultural imperative to express themselves uh, with their songwriting. Some of them were very good, you know. Uh, there were groups around the time, like Little River Band, who uh, had huge hits in America in a style, uh, you know, that, that hit big because it was a lot like the Eagles, like the West Coast vocal groups and. Uh, but but they would have groups would have hits here writing songs about Mississippi or Arkansas grass and, and stuff you know it was a it was a language of pop that that was beyond uh, Australian uh, expressions so there, there there was it was a shock when someone would mention something about Australian and uh, you see it in someone. Uh, Someone's like Nick Cave is uh, he, he is uh, stateless in a way. Yes. Early on, he had his thing where where he was obsessed with uh, Southern America or something. Yeah. But were you? I've uh... taken him. You know, that's him. That's him. He's that's he's the dark lord in that country. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dear old Nick Cave and the birthday party. Yes. But obviously, there was one. There was one band that um, this is probably going to create a tumbleweed yeah. moment. But there was one band that obviously we we just a bit like Nana's Ninety Nine Red Balloons that yeah. suddenly became global and did sort of because of the video, we, we suddenly went, oh, very nice. That was, you know, obviously Men at Work with um, Down Under, which was kind of, I guess, you know, it, was that a bit of a shock when that suddenly sort of took off? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't. We couldn't, I couldn't really, we thought they were pretty naff. Yes, uh, I, could, I could imagine. But, but it was one of those songs that just suddenly... You know, was a soundtrack, and I, I, I think they even supported David Bowie on the Serious Moonlight tour. On, yeah. and I sort of, I think I, I, I think I even saw them on that particular one at Milton Keynes. And it, you know, they were just the band that, you know, where every, you know, every, every way you went, you could just hear that song. The singer was Scottish Australian, and now he he has a full on Scottish accent, and uh, he still plays everywhere. He, he has incredible reach into. Uh, uh, American culture, uh, but uh, it's just one of those things. Like it's good on them. It was a pop hit. It, it had elements that were a lot like uh, the Police. Yes, they did have a smoothness. 
So then, you know, because with because you know, I remember sort of doing an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and they were, you know, like had been together for a while and going nowhere fast, and we're just about to give it up, you know, thinking we'll just do a few more gigs and see if we can get anybody to sign us because you know, they still didn't quite have a sound that made them particularly interesting beyond a sort of a probably just a, a rock band. Did it take a while for the for for your sort of band to get a sound that made you a little bit more sort of interesting to sort of a wider public you do mean the moodists yes the moodists uh right uh i don't think we ever got to a wider public so uh we were very insular uh we're quite authentic uh we we had no language to hype ourselves uh you know no kind of art jargon or anything yes Uh, a friend was talking about that generation, how they, of Australian artists, and how they spoke with the uh, journalists at the, uh, in the in the UK press. And uh, this friend pointed out that it was uh, they were from all from similar classes in a way, like uh, from uh, private private schools in Australia are your public schools, yeah. Uh, public school boys and we were kind of not that kind of people uh we just got drunk and did gigs uh probably comparable to the replacements but we didn't have the application to write songs as singular as paul westerboom uh we had a great sound as a unit you know uh kind of uh but we we were very uh, averse to ever talking about what we did or identifying it. So uh, uh, it was all quite unconscious. So in many ways, it was quite a righteous, authentic group. Uh, and uh, like many, like you know, I liked that I knew the Triffids when they first came to Melbourne. Yeah, from from Perth, which is a long way away, and uh, the entire continent away. And I quite like all their stuff before they left Australia. I think Britain kind of, uh, you know, that they walked into situations where it was 80s production, which kind of, and, and, and the way record companies isolate uh, one person rather than a band. And, and uh, so I like all their stuff a real lot before they left here. Uh, the go-betweens were very unique before they left here as well. And the boys next door who became the birthday party. I, I, I find that if I listen to their stuff, it's really great. And when I hear the Saints, I just think they're the most lovable, kind of maddest event in, in Australian music ever. Yes. Uh, but uh, before we left uh, uh, Melbourne to go to the UK, uh, we, were, we would just furiously write songs. Like we would... Uh, it's like when you go to see the boys next door on the birthday party, they would be doing, they'd put out a record and they would already be doing songs from the next one. You know, it was very exciting seeing them. And there's a band around now called King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard who are just like that. You know, that they'll put out a record and then they'll just play the one they're recording at the moment live. It's very uh, thrilling. But uh, we just we just churned through material here in Melbourne, and I think, uh, in some ways, I think uh, 
we also probably could have done our best stuff had, had we not left Australia. Yes, because you'd done, you know, you'd, you'd had. I was, I was really into uh, people like uh, Vic Goddard and Subway Sect and the uh, kind of uh, the fire, en fire engines and the, uh, and the uh, orange juice, all people I kind of got to know later on. And, uh, but by the time we got to the UK, we'd, we'd gone into this kind of uh, bluesier, kind of uh, harder rocking kind of end of the spectrum. And, uh, yeah, it was a funny shift in, in emphasis. Yes. Well, it's interesting because there's kind of four bands that everyone talks about in the 80s, from the indie scene, I suppose. And there was, yeah. there was always Orange Juice and then The Smiths, The Go-Betweens and The June Brides that everyone... Um, sort of had a huge influence, even though I think the latter sort of probably didn't sort of quite ever get the material together, but certainly the other bands definitely did. But I think it was just the kind of influence they had. But but in, in that sort of 82 period, you'd sort of done a couple of singles and then in 83 relocated to the to to London and and were on the Red Flame record label which seemed to play a major part in kind of a lot of bands lives so did that I mean did that feel like quite a jump because you just you know you didn't have a huge body of work by then but then suddenly sort of traveled around the world well you know like I said it was like a it seemed to be a fast track to a, a more kind of thrilling world uh, of uh, touring and making music and a, a life of a band and uh, didn't see any way we could plug into what was the uh, Australian pop scene, uh, which really didn't have – we were on a great label, a go-go here, but we just put out two. Yes. Three records on them. And then they even they got – it was just so expensive recording and making records there. It was ridiculous. But uh, – uh, we played at the going away gigs, like opening for the Laughing Clowns and the Go Betweens, and then we went ourselves. Uh, the the uh, Dave Kitson from Red Flame came out here and kind of, you know, said he'd uh, you know put out our records if we came over there and you know put us in studios, and he was really great. He was probably the best. Uh, record company experience we had in the UK. Yes, well, I know that was that was seemed to be one, and so you kind of got you know the the the, the sort of the moment that you know I suppose a lot of bands kind of wanted, and and then thought, well, I don't know where we go from here, but a John Peel session. So obviously, but you'd also recorded a few records as well before then. So, but did yeah. that sort of feel like a bit of a, a step up working you know within the BBC and um, having their sort of sound engineer and and working at Made of Vale, which had become this famous studio? I, I didn't know what a session was and uh, nobody told me. <laughs> I thought we'd made an album, why don't, they, why don't they just play it? What's this session business? And I thought it was uh, it was it was just you're supposed to improvise something or do something on the spot, you know, and then that's what I think we did mostly. Yes. <laughs> and it was sounding so bad that somebody said, I do, yeah, you're supposed to do something that's on your album. So, uh, yeah, I still don't understand that part of it really. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
But then that that sort of obviously you started touring quite heavily and and going around Europe as well. So I mean I mean it's always kind of impressive, you know. It would be impressive going traveling, you know, on your own with a backpack, but sort of with a band with you know instruments yeah. and trying to keep it together. How do you sort of manage to do all those things? Because in those days, you, you know, obviously we didn't have the internet, um, you know, but trying to sort of figure out stuff while having the dynamic of these other people that you're you're with. You mean in the band? Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, fi- finding places to, you know, to actually live, not just sort of, right. you know, not just hostels, but then sort of having the pressure of sort of like, oh, God, we've got to sort of try and find a place to rehearse and we're going to find a yeah. place and play music. So did you feel like you were on a sort of some sort of mission or quest by then? Uh, well, it just seemed to, uh, you know, we met people through other people and... Uh, we arrived in London and Claire and I moved into a squat in West Hampstead uh, that had been vacated by Robert and Lindy from the Go-Betweens. And, uh, you know, it seemed quite genteel, the squatting business. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, it was up the road from the Moonlight Club, I think, which uh, Dave Kitson had started, you know, and I think Alan McGee was probably – doing things in at the time as well as doing fan scenes. And, uh, you know, we just uh, met people through friends and friends. There was a kind of Australian community around in some squats in South London uh, that, you know, uh, that people all helped each other, that kind of thing. And uh, we met some other other musicians. There were, you know, through living in, in uh, council areas and all that, just, just being young you are kind of fearless and you uh, you trust in life in a way that you find difficult to do later on. <laughs> yes, well, this is very true. Because most bands, you know, like I was saying, you know, do have a bit of a five-year narrative, you know, of getting together and doing that first album, which, you know, often things are good, and having the John Peel session, which you take that yeah. one. But often when the second album was kind of happening, that's yeah. when things start to get a bit tricky. And if anybody ever you know, does any major tours, especially America, that seems to sort of break bands in another sort of way. So did you, you've got slightly similar sort of a time span, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> we went through different things. Uh, I just, I think living in London then was uh, still quite hard, but it was exciting. And uh, it's not as expensive, wasn't as expensive then as it is now. Uh but uh, some members of the group just wanted to go back to Australia. It was too too uh, hard for them, I guess. And, and it ended up myself, Claire, and the guitarist Steve Miller uh, stayed there, and we hooked up with the bass player of uh, who had been in Orange Juice, David McClymont, and through here we worked with Malcolm Ross, and uh, we did some other later period things, which in some ways went back to the sort of music we'd been doing, kind of of lighter and more involved in song construction than the kind of uh, uh, bluesy kind of uh, uh, hard-rocking rock and roll that we'd we'd done with our former bass player, Chris Walsh. 
Yes. And then 87, which is, our, this is a year that I've put down as probably one of the best in music for many reasons. Um, Come on, give me the reasons. Oh, well, there was, there was the sort of, there was the Smiths album, there was the Sign of the Time by Prince, there was uh, The Cure, um, even Whitney Houston's second album. No, I'm just joking. Um, but there was a lot of really good, good <laughs> albums that came out in that year. But also it was one of those periods because 86 is pretty incredible. You know, you had you know, a lot of, I don't know, there was, there was people like the Bundy Boys that John Peel used to play a lot. And again, you just yeah. look at the amount of albums that came out then. You know, you just kind of Google and you think, my God, you know, even though we were still moaning and feeling depressed about life, you know, we did have a lot of good records out. And then you look at 87 and it's like even getting better. But but the party kind of start, you know, changes then in sort of 87 because, you know, the Smiths break up, you know, Born Sandy Devotional had been gone. And, you know, that was well, a, that was a classic album that I obviously loved, which you probably hated. <laughs> but it was... I, remember, I think I heard it at the time, but I, I haven't haven't heard it much since. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was one of those. They're all they're all very good friends of mine. Yes. Uh, well, right. so but that... a funny thing about that generation of musicians. We're all very competitive, but uh, friendly. Yeah. Yes, but then the one thing that sort of I think once that sort of that year had sort of gone, there was a sort of like the music journalists were getting slightly bored of the music, you know, because you because just just briefly, you know, just before that in the 80s, you know, you had the mainstream charts that was very dominated with that Trevor Horn production sound. It was really big, bombastic, you know, Tina Turner, Dire Straits, Duran Duran, you know, that, you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood, you know, and then you had the indie scene and and that was, again, quite jingly jangly. But then as the decade f started to sort of come towards an end, you know, ecstasy started to sort of become the drug of choice and people started to get into the sort of more dance scene. So a few of the bands started to cross over, like the Happy Mondays and and obviously the Soup Dragons, and then you had the Stone Roses, and you had that whole sort of club scene. So a lot of those bands who were trying to make those perfect three-minute songs were just thinking, actually, I'm not going to be able to do that, so I'm going to give it, you know, I'm going to call it a day, basically. So. Uh -huh. Right. That that kind of did knock out a lot of bands, and '87 was the band time when you also decided the band was was going to sort of come to an end. Uh, yes, yeah. We, uh, it it seems a bit kind of uh, difficult, so it was probably it just sort of petered out in a way. And uh, uh, Claire kept uh, Claire's always kept. She's been quite good at meeting other players and that she was because uh, she, she loves to play the drums and uh and she was playing with these uh people from out of brixton uh i think one of them was adam sanderson who was in uh you know the jasmine mix or something and uh just, just and, and gordy blair who, who was uh ran into all these kind of belfast people who had been in, in bands and uh, then, then I I was hanging around with the Epic soundtracks a lot, and uh, you know he was such a. Uh, do you know him? No. Epic. He was from a group called uh, the Swell Maps. Oh yes, the Swell Maps. Yes. From Nicky Sutton, he was very much into music, collecting and mythology, and uh, he was just. I was just experiencing music again. In a fresher way, you seem to go through periods of taking in things and then synthesizing them uh, within your own uh, 
experience, and that's what '87 was for me. Yes, and you did a yeah. and you did a sort of EP that had been produced by the legendary Barry Adamson. So yeah. when when you were recording that, did you yeah. feel that this was going to be your sort of swan song? Oh no, I, I felt uh, I felt that was like the beginning. Yeah. Yes. Like I, I felt like that was a, a beginning for me. And the Buddhists have been my kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, it's like my blues. It's like my uh, groundwater, my uh, my kind of swamp. Yes. And then I, I come out of that and, uh, and, and I was really into, uh, I wanted to construct songs and play them. Barry was a friend. Uh, he had a kind of connection with Australian musicians through magazine, came to Australia a couple of times and they had quite, you know, played to quite big crowds and he had an Australian, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, partner and uh, he was, you know, in the, he came in the bad seeds, that kind of thing. So Yes. And, we, and he was just a really, really uh, impressive person. Yeah. With a great bass sound. Yeah, I've, I've always tried to ask him about that because I, I play bass in a friend's band and I say, come on, Barry, what's your secret? <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember that I did an interview with him as well and he you know, he sort of sort of gave the impression that you know, he picked up the instrument and there was only a few strings on the you know, the guitar which, yeah. which he was practising with, but he'd, so he always had to keep it very simple because you know, he, yeah. he, he probably downplays his own sort of a talent with that but um yes he, he does yeah i think he does yeah but anyway you know we love bass players especially lemmy yeah. from motorhead but then <laughs> obviously so was did you so did you feel that that ep was was not just the end of the band but the beginning of your musical journey this is the one with the coral snakes that one yes or five, of course yes yeah i thought that was like uh putting my card out like a marker yeah yeah, I thought I thought I was uh, doing something nobody else was doing, and, and uh, we were in a way we were like years ahead of of, uh, of like we were pretty much it, it moved on to our next album. We were doing kind of alt country before it became a thing. You know, we we were, and I was also into uh, not so much writing my own songs I wanted to interpret other people's and so we'd do a Lou Reed song called Stupid Man from uh, The Bells uh, you know uh, Tim Buckley song uh, well Fred Neal song called The Dolphins and uh, do uh, a Sir Douglas Quintet song called uh, I forget what that was called uh, yes yeah it's so just doing and Gene Clark especially and uh some Graham Parsons, that kind of thing. So uh, it was like a, a different approach. And uh, I started to talk a real lot in between songs. And, and nobody else was doing that or could do it. Yeah. You know, I, was, I wasn't doing it. I was just doing it because I wanted to have an atmosphere. I didn't want to, because in my experience in the Buddhist was that the atmosphere was 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 the band and it swallowed me up but I wanted to create an atmosphere in which I could have songs of different tempos and feelings and but they would be in this within this smoky kind of uh, 
ambience that that I would that I would uh, be uh, calling up for people. So, yeah. And obviously, within within you know that that musical journey, because you've recorded an album in in Croydon, the home of the former you know Procol Harum organist Matthew Fisher. Yeah. So, were you over those years? I mean, obviously, we all probably grew up and had sort of whiter shade of pale in sconce in our brain from a. Probably, I don't know, from birth, really. But, did you know, obviously sort of going through the musical world and meeting all these different people and having different experiences, did that also feel kind of, kind of, I suppose, thrilling? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, because I suppose, because I suppose my first love and was, you know, like people like David Bowie and I sort of bought the single, you know, Space Oddity and was obsessed with the B-side as well because I had Changes and Velvet Goldmine and then the first album was Changes 1. And then sort of, you know, I think with your first love, you know, you just stick with it all your life. And so sort of realised that, you know, he'd gone through, you know, like the 70s, he did an album a year, produced several people's, relocated, did huge tours and then just kept making music. Did you, I mean, you've got you've got a very similar kind of story, really, haven't you, in the sense of, you know, music, there was no sort of alternative. The same with Lemmy, really. Um, you know, it was like, this is it, what I'm going to do. And then having to d- explore different avenues and go down different sort of paths. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I've been very lucky to, to, to be with Claire for uh, all of the time because in, in some ways we have, we had so much uh, energy and we had... Uh, we had uh, after the moonists, we just were filled with a uh, sense of unfinished business that we really wanted to uh, uh, to uh, fulfil, and uh, so it was just uh, just ambition, I guess, to to uh, to matter. And uh, came back to Australia, and uh, if I thought I was, you know, ahead of the game in the UK. In Australia, I was probably unbearably confident. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which was, you know, were people surprised when they, they met the new year? They must have thought you'd been on some sort of weekend workshop with Tony Robbins and had discovered the joy of life. <laughs> were you, well, basically, were, had you become Sting in Australia? No, 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 no. We're very underworld people. Very underworld, and we exist very off-grid. You know, it's it's been strange. Like when we came back to Australia, we were still working with Fire Records, and we did two albums for them. And uh, for the most, and then most of the '90s and uh, till now, we've been in Australia. Uh, we never ever talked about the Moodists, and nobody ever asked. And, and it's only if we talk to someone from the UK or Europe that people associate us with this group, the Moonists. Yeah. And, and we, it was funny because in the 90s we, we had a period of public exposure here, like not so much commercial radio but on television, pop shows a lot. And, uh, you, know, as, you know, really, and I, I was really uh, embracing it to uh, get, in in front of people, and I won an award in 1995, like a uh, you know best art, best male artist of the entire pop scene, Excellent. and uh, that was that was kind of the peak 
acceptance because when when I got it, they were so revolted that they wanted to get rid of the award. <laughs> and they said, you know, people like him are winning. It's really bad. But uh, nobody ever asked us about it. And we had our friends and peers, David McComb from the Triffids and Robert and Grant from the Gover Twins, who could not get going in the 90s. They, they were 80s. Do they you know were, what I mean? Yes, absolutely. They had their moment. <laughs> And we were, we were just in a new scene to a new audience, and, uh, and it was strange, you know. Did your, you know, what were the record sales like with with your, you know, the Coral Snakes? Yes, so our biggest record was a gold record, which uh, took a couple of years because we just uh, we were kind of undeniably uh, good live band, and it was at the height of grunge rock, and. Uh, we were more like uh, the Beastie Boys or Pulp or Urge Overkill in, in, in our presentation and uh, the uh, textures of our sound. Yeah. But we played these festivals with groups like uh, American groups who are huge here, like uh, like uh, Soundgarden or Helmet or <laughs> just stuff I really tried to like, but it had nothing for me. And... Uh, so we, our biggest record was a gold record, which in Australia is 35,000 copies. Yeah. A plat, platinum record is 70,000. And the kind of big groups of that period would sell four or five times platinum in Australia. But it was a very good period for Australian music for, uh, I think, in, in a lot of 90s music, there was a lot of large labels investing in uh, things uh, they were pretty off the wall. Like, like we were on Universal, a small label part of Universal. You know, that was like tricky and, and uh, that, that kind of brilliant kind of period of music, you know. Yes, absolutely. All of Island Records, all island records and stuff, yeah. And then in sort of 90, it was, it was 97. So, yes, because one the other thing that sort of knocks a lot of people out, you know, apart from... Like I said, the musical landscape changing, and obviously we'd had sort of Brit pop in in the yeah. UK, so we had that whole sort of stuff. And as you mentioned, you know, there was pulp, and there was also, you know, all those other bands that we, I don't know, like it, Oasis. I, yeah, like it, uh, I never, I never quite understood the appeal, but you know, BM, you know, I mean, they were popular, and everyone suddenly got on, you know, TV playing guitars. So yes. it was almost like these little kids who were. I don't know, infants during the sort of the C86 years in the 80s that suddenly sort of grew up, you know, did something slightly cleaner than the, the, the 80s sound and sort of made loads of records, really. I don't know, made about making money. But then did you, was there a moment that, that you decided that the Coral Snakes was going to come to an end as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just got mainly, mainly, our uh, groups have their kind of life and uh it was always I was writing the songs and, you know, doing the whole, uh, uh, you know, getting the whole production or aesthetic of some sort of album or gig together or I would be out there pimping it to people. And uh, uh, so so um, I, I got bored with the style of performing, which was uh, – standing up and singing, which I'd always done, and I wanted to uh, 
retreat in a way back into the music by, you know, playing the guitar and and singing, get, getting more back into uh, that kind of Fred Neil, uh, just a beat group type of smaller operation, and that was around 1998. Yes. And did you also sort of see people like, I think it was like the Tindersticks and bands like that who were sort of developing quite a interesting persona and style that did you sort of feel that and also obviously Nick Cave was doing things like that as well did you were you beginning to feel like you wanted to I don't know change your sort of personality not persona a bit and uh, become a slightly different performer uh it was mainly just wanting to play the guitar which affects the way you you have to concentrate and you're not looking at the audience so directly or worrying about them so much uh, we were on at that period in the 90s when we were kind of happening here. We started to release our albums on This Way Up in the UK, which was the same label that Tim Distics were on, uh, which was run by uh, a fellow worked there who used to work at Fire Records and uh, and Martin, who uh, I forget his name, he, he started. Uh, he was a really amazing guy. He started Radar Records and, you know, he's the one that the Stone Roses threw paint all over his offices. Uh, oh, right. Martin, somebody, uh, he's a real great old school music guy. Uh, you know, he signed the Buzzcocks and the Stranglers to United Artists and stuff. Anyway, so we were on this way up and, yeah, the Tinder Sticks, I could never figure them out, no. I didn't know it. I didn't know what the hell they were up to. It just, <laughs> guy's voice sounded funny, and they, yeah, I didn't. I know Terry Edwards is a nice guy, and uh, yeah, but yeah, I couldn't make head or tail of that, you know. And, uh, My God, Nick, yes. Cave, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds were, uh, yeah, they, they were always a great live, live performing act, you know, great, great performance, and. Uh, you know, uh, we've always been quite close friends with uh, Mick Harvey and uh, Conway Savage, the late Conway Savage, used to play with us before he joined the Nick Cave. Yes. They, they were always like, uh, they like they took our mix of Victor and, uh, you know, took Conway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy conflict, uh, David. I, I'm just joking, really. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Well, it's tricky. Well, one the other thing that sort of breaks people's hearts is is kind of the the, the ownership of the music and and sort of publishing. I mean, you've produced and, and recorded so much stuff. How have, have you managed to navigate those kind of slightly tricky waters? Because there, there there's a few labels that you've mentioned that having done interviews with a lot of people yeah. that it brings them out into a slight stutter and a, a cold sweat. Yeah. But I won't mention oh, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, if you talk to anybody from Fire Records, yeah, they would get, uh, <laughs> they wouldn't be very positive about the experience. And, uh, yep, that's them. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think there are modern, there's a modern Fire Records, and then there was the uh, original one. It's probably the original one that has the, the uh, history of, uh, I don't know, bad feeling with artists who, uh, with them, I don't know. But, yes. Yeah, they, they own two of our records, and uh, yeah, it, it's, you can become obsessed about that sort of thing, or 
later each one up, but it's it's best to uh, just move on and do something else. I think. I mean, have you managed to sort of keep a, a track and a sort of archive of all your all your work? Because obviously, you know, you've you've done a phenomenal amount, and you must be sort of aware of you know, as as we get older, you know, like David Bowie did his kind of the exhibition at the V&A, which I think toured David Bowie ears, and then there's been films on bands, as as you sort of know from the chills that go between the slits, you know, L L seven. So so there is kind of like oh yes, there's interest in all this stuff, and I often yeah. think that you know when thirty a thirty year narrative passes, people sort of look back and suddenly start to really appreciate such stuff much more than they did at the time, but. 30 years seems to be a passing of time. So I just wondered if, you, if you've if you been, you know, sort of doing the same. There was a young fella who was uh, trying to make a film about us. I have to get back in touch with him. Uh, yeah, and he filmed some interviews and, that, and uh, he had some quite good ideas about it. Uh, but I've written two memoirs, uh, and I enjoyed doing that, both from different kind of perspectives. Uh, I wrote one about all of the uh, kind of music that uh, inspired me, and uh, and I wanted to write about the Australian post-punk scene because no one had really done it. And uh, it's quite a willfully kind of non-linear book. And then I wrote one called Work Shy, which is more personal and it's about all of the little jobs I took whilst trying to be a musician and uh, like how much I loved being on the dole and all that and how bad I was working in an office and uh, all the work I ended up doing anyway. But uh, that, that, that book is, uh, you know, also about the uh, when you're writing that kind of thing, you, you realise you, you make choices but what what – options did you have and even you know I, I was in this little town and uh, the influences on me were my football club and uh, the catholic church and uh and then there was kind of punk rock you know rock and roll you know so yes claire and i are kind of authentic rock and roll people like we, we didn't learn stuff at university uh we, we, everything we we've learned is uh pretty much from uh, the street <laughs> in a funny way. Sounds dramatic, but uh, that, that's what it is, from rock and roll culture. Yeah. Well, yes, absolutely. I know, because, because, it, because something you said earlier, which was quite interesting, is that when you're sort of younger and you're sort of, I suppose, the sap is rising, everyone's a little bit competitive and sort of probably sort of ignoring each other at sort of, you know, places or, or being a bit offish. But then you must look around and, and you see people like members of the hard-ons, like who are still doing it, and then Robert, who's still doing it, and Lindy. So do, do you occasionally, when you bump into each other, sort of have a bit of a hug and think, my God, it's been a strange life? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we have a very good friend like Peter Milton Walsh from The Apartments, and he's uh, they were contemporaries of the go-betweens. And, uh, he's, he's great, you know, he's spent he has the strangest eye, you know, uh, if you look at his career, it has like decades of you know disappearance and uh, just difficulties working in an industry, but they love him in France, and he's you know, he's, he just has interest in his music and he's very uh, authentic. 
last time with Robert came to town, we went to see him, uh, kind of, kind of, uh, you really enjoy the show, kind of keep in touch with him. A friend, a uh, good friend is Kim Salmon, who was in The Scientist, and uh, he, uh, we, we played with him recently, and uh, yeah, I realise, you know, he's probably the one peer who's been, uh, We've been sort of going side by side with you know for so many decades, you know, and uh, I find him totally inspiring, uh, probably more than many others. Yeah. Yes. But uh, hu- hugging, no, no, don't. No. <laughs> It'd be quite fun to see you and Robert hug. But look, you've got a new album out, One Million Years DC, which is yeah. obviously sort of you must be still very excited by. And you mentioned that it's um, a bit Mel Haggard meets Samuel Beckett, which is a very exciting, slightly pretentious. That's one, that's one song. One song. <laughs> so you, you, and, you and Claire, obviously, you know, you are the sort of Peters to, to your Lee, aren't you, Peters and Lee? Um, so so, so has, has that been, that partnership, has that been probably the most important partnership and relationship you've ever had because otherwise the insanity would have encroached? Uh, definitely, yes, and uh, it's kind of uh, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, you know, uh, yeah. Well, it's like together. We just went out and did a whole bunch of shows in in uh, New South Wales and Queensland, and just even the two of us, we could make a show. You know, yes, playing uh, keys and guitar and. Uh, uh, we just have a song book, and we we uh, we have each other, and uh, and uh, the audience has an idea about us, and uh, that's all you need. Absolutely. To, yeah. Yes. Sorry, I was just thinking of that Bon Jovi song when you said we have each other. That's uh, very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know any. Jovi's. No, but that's the only oh, one I yeah. know. It, it, well, the Bon Jovi, you know, we've got each other and that's a lot. Um, it's probably a bit like one of the... It's the only song I know and probably the only lyric, but you couldn't miss that song during the 80s. So is it the case that as you look out to your audience that you're sort of seeing old friends still with you as well as kind of new people sort of discovering you for the first time? Uh, you know, increasingly, it's like, for me, it's like being a country singer. Uh have people coming along because we play in regional areas, uh, you know, most Australia, most people just play in the inner city or whatever to their friends. We, we just go and play to strangers. Uh, yes. Yeah, people come, people will come along with their children. Sometimes the children send their parents. Uh, you know, I run into people, you know, uh, you know, like it's strange, like, a normal person runs into people once in their life. I, I run into people two or three times in different decades, and uh, yeah, it's odd. Uh, but uh, yeah, I really value that kind of thing, that kind of contact, and the uh, you know, uh, I guess my audience is like really uh, clear points it out. They're real because uh, I've done things in libraries too with my books and. Uh, the library people go, wow, these people have never been in the library before. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, uh, like uh, blue-collar guys, you know, truckers, like uh, not, not uh, if it indie people, no. No, no. absolutely. And oh, it must be... 
And yeah. I was just going to say, just lastly, I mean, what would you kind of say to your uh, 18-year-old sort of self sort of starting out in music that you thought, oh, this is one little, this is a bit of advice that I would definitely sort of just take, you know, take note and just think about? Uh, I, I love to read interviews with Richard Hell, and he's uh, always says something surprising. And he he said, uh, or maybe it's in one of his books, uh, that there's something in people that is unchanging and uh, the idea that you grow into uh, something else is is not something he, he uh, kind of goes along with. And I'm kind of the same. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I can access songs of mine, you know, from decades ago and they don't, they're, they're part of my inner flux and uh, they're as fresh to me as ever. And because uh, I just lucked onto a way of expressing myself that was, uh, uh, I don't know, it's like uh, that was me in a way. And uh, it's not like a fashionable, it's not like, uh, it's not like, like uh, things that are seem uh, dopey because they're from a different time and they're, they're my, my songs. And, uh, yeah, so my 18-year-old self wasn't much different from what I am now. Kind of uh, <clears throat> loose and uh, unreliable and, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, a bit of a, bit of a uh, dreamer, I guess. I don't know. Yes. And do you? Yeah. Uh, and next year, are you planning to do any tours out of, the, out of Australia and elsewhere? I don't know. Uh, we have to see what happens with uh, your election in the UK. I don't know with all that Brexit stuff. It seems yes. like it seems like it were if if the the uh, worst happens and you get Boris Johnson and Brexit, it'll go back to being what it was in the eighties, which was uh, a real logjam of uh, filling out so many forms to cross between borders. You know, with musical equipment and stuff. It's ridiculous. So I don't know. I, I do love uh, coming to the UK and, uh, you know, uh, Europe. And uh, I love the uh, seriousness that people put into music there. And it's quite intoxicating. And uh, it, it uh, doesn't exist in Australia. So uh, uh, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying we work in a vacuum, but we, we uh, work... Uh, well, we work, uh, uh, the stuff we do uh, bemuses uh, most people who consider themselves the, uh, you know, uh, gatekeepers of what the music industry is. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Look, Dave, this has been fantastic, but um, I better let you go and have your tea, I guess. No worries. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, look, thank you ever so much. And I'll tell you when I put this out, but that has been fantastic. And um, yes, like a huge thank you because cause actually I got this friend who I uh, sort of um, know called Lucy, who was, you know, Australian. She sort of came over to, you know, the UK and has been here ever since, but was from that kind of, you know, 80s period. And she was like, my God, yeah. Dave, Dave is a legend. He's such a legend. <laughs> you know, she, her face lit up with such enthusiasm. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so it was just fantastic. I'll be able to tell her. You know, you're from Norwich, yeah. Yes. 
you know, we associate Norwich with our friend Louis, Louis Vores and all those people like Charlie Higgs and, and Terry Edwards. I think they all went to Norfolk, Norwich University. Yes, dear old Terry, yes. And uh, yes, I saw him recently. He was performing with Richard Strange, um, who was Not in the... Album, so I could make, it seemed odd, like uh, the Doctors of Madness one, I think I've got. Yes. Well, they were doing the music. They had a bit of a super group, and that was like about six weeks ago, of doing the music of Lou Reed, and Terry was there blowing his saxophone, so it was a pretty cool night. But it was it had, it had Richard, but they also had a guy who was with, had been with David Bowie on one yeah. of his tours as well, I think Kevin Armstrong. So it was, you know, it was interesting. So Terry pops up. I'm always seeing his little cheeky face on yeah. various social media pictures. In the street here, he did Tommy, you know, the Who's Tommy. He did that. And Robert Forster was, was Uncle Ernie in it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he did these Jay, uh, Michael Caine show, Blow the Bloody Doors Off, and Excellent. But we saw him out here with uh, PJ Harvey. That was just a really great show. Yeah, and, and uh, Norwich is also Alan Partridge, isn't it? It is. It is Partridge Land. We you know, <laughs> we love Alan Partridge. I mean, <clears throat> yes, he's he's a legend, really. So, well, we loved Steve Coogan in all his kind of other little geysers as well. But um, Alan Partridge was definitely his main character. Yeah, I like. We love uh, Stuart Lee. And he's like. Uh, he is so much uh, into my music. It's that, that when you're asking about does it, if you meet your heroes and they, <laughs> you're, you're engaging with them. Yeah, Stuart Lee comes to my shows and uh, I think, wow, because his stuff is so impressive. But he, he oh, pretty much has all of our albums. Excellent. I know. Well, he's, you know, yes, he's quite interesting because a lot of his influence, you know, he, lo he loved this kind of strange stand-up called Ted Chippington, but he also loves the work yeah. of Shirley Collins as well. So um, yes. he's all I, I, I've interviewed her for a radio show I do in Melbourne. Yes. So he was a bit of a legend. But look, this is brilliant. Well, thank you ever so all much, right. Dave. Okay. And I'll, and I'll keep in touch. But thanks again and have a great evening. No worries. Take See care. Bye-bye.